All right, turn to page 7. There you'll find our scripture uh, reading there from Ephesians. Uh, the last, uh, I mean, since Easter, we've been really looking at the resurrection. You know, Easter is about the resurrection. And um, thinking about this year, um, it was really at least apparent to me that um, when we talk about the resurrection, uh, we talk about it in the terms of the past. We try to prove it, give evidence for it, uh, that really our faith does hinge on this historical event. So it's important uh, as Christians uh, to give it a historical validity. Um, we also look at uh, the resurrection and talk about it in a future sense, that, the, it, that resurrection really is uh, the first fruits of the new heavens and the new earth, that um, really a new dawn has come in the resurrection, that this is the first glimpse of everything being restored. This is chapter one of restoration, is the redemption of Jesus, the restoration of Jesus' body. So we talk about what that means for heaven, what that means in the end for the new heavens and new earth being a physical thing here on earth. And it's, that's really, both of those things are super important. But what we've been focusing on is, what does resur- resurrection mean for you and for me today? What's it mean for Christians uh, now? So we've looked at all kinds of things. We've looked at friendship last week. We've talked about the resurrection with our minds, with our bodies, with our hearts. Uh, and this week we'll be looking at the resurrection and how it relates to our words. Um, let's read our passage and then we'll pray. This passage is about words. Go figure. Ephesians 4. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down your anger. And give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Let's pray. Uh, Father, we uh, need these words, uh, every one of them. Uh, and Lord, we know that in the end it were your words to us uh, that brought us to life. Lord, that you um, breathed your breath into Adam and he came alive. And uh, Lord, would you breathe? Um, would you breathe your air? Would you give us your words and bring us to life, even tonight, uh, Lord? I, I have no strength to bring any change about, any transformation about. Lord, that is not my job. And so, Lord, we uh, we know that it's yours. And so, because it's your job, we want to ask you to do uh, that work in our hearts. Lord, I, I pray that uh, restoration uh, would happen. Um, in our walks with the, in our relationships with, with each other, uh, with our, uh, in particular, with our relationship with you, we pray these things in your name, Amen. Uh, so you'll see here, uh, there's a lot of uh, things uh, in this text, a lot of different commands. But really, our sermon tonight is about telling the truth. Uh, our sermon tonight is about not lying. Uh, our sermon tonight is about being encouraging with your words and not tearing down others with your words. Um, our sermon tonight is about working hard and not being uh, and not stealing. Uh, our sermon tonight um, is about uh, being angry but not being given over to anger. Um, 
in many ways, it's kind of like, man, here are the best practices for humans. <laughs> right here. Uh, I don't know, in your workplaces, pastors do this kind of thing. They kind of all sit in a circle, and no one really talks. It's kind of a discussion, like, hey, what is it? You know, we all kind of do the same thing. What, what, what are best practices that you guys have found to work? It's kind of like if human beings got together and sat in a circle and said, hey, what are the best practices for life really working? You would say some of these things in this text. So not just would humans do this, but all religions kind of say these things. Even irreligious people, people who would say that they, they don't affiliate with any religion, that they may even be atheistic or agnostic, they would agree with a lot of these commands here. Well, if that's the case, wouldn't it mean that all religions would be the same? Well, don't miss the forest of Christianity for the trees of ethics. Say it again. Don't miss the forest of Christianity for the trees of ethics. These commands are like trees, but we can miss the whole, uh, the, the whole framework, the whole picture of Christianity by focusing in on a tree. See, all these other religions and even atheistic and agnostic moralism, they really say the same thing. They say, do these things because it's the right thing to do. Well, then Christianity comes along and says, do the right thing. Do these things because this is who you are. It's a huge difference between doing the right thing because it's the right thing to do and doing the right thing because this is who you are. See, what happens to Christians is that we undergo this identity change, that we undergo, we become new creations. We under, we've undergone a transformation of personality, not just a modification in behavior. So behavior modification would be like um, washing and waxing my car, my 14-year-old Avalon. Um, it really wouldn't look that much better, honestly, if you washed it and waxed it. Um, but it would be like washing and waxing your car. It would be like detailing the inside. It would be putting car ref refresheners in it. Um, it would be tinting the windows. It would be changing out my speaker system, which cracks and doesn't really have any base to it. Um, it would be doing all those things, but the engine doesn't run. What good does that really do? You can make the whole thing look good, but it doesn't serve its purpose. Well, you can make your whole life look good and do these things, but you're still going to be dead in your sin and your trespasses. What gospel transformation says is that your identity has to change. You get a new life, and then the resurrection life that's on the inside begins to lead to radical change on the outside. That's why if we were to read just a few verses before we get to verse 25, really verses 22 to 24 that aren't in your bulletin, you would see that Paul says to put on the new self. And when you put on the new self, you're tapping into this resurrection power that's yours now, if you're a believer. You're tapping into, you're tapping into who you are when you tell the truth, when you exercise healthy anger, when you work hard, and when you speak words that build up. But some of you might be saying, okay, Marsh, if that's all true, then why don't, I find it easy, why don't I find it to be easier to live these things out? Why is it so hard to do what's required in this passage? Why is it so hard for my words to be used to, towards the cause of love instead of towards the cause of bolstering my ego? Well, it's because transformation's messy, really messy. To put on the new self and put on the old self, there's a, a disorganization and a reorganization that has to happen. Um, back in January... Uh, Jen and I, um, we took out a wall in our house. Jen and I didn't do it. I didn't do it. We paid somebody to do it. That's what we do. Um, which means we have to save up longer and can't do as much as we want to because we tried the HGTV thing. It doesn't work. I don't have it in me. Um, 
So what we really, this wall was the wall between our living room and our dining room. And if we opened it up, it would be easier to host. Uh, a whole, uh, all this light would come flooding through the windows and kind of open up our common space. And it has. It's been great. But in the meantime, this wall had to come out. And our house is 120 years old. So things aren't made out of drywall. They're made out of, the walls are not made out of drywall. They're made out of plaster. And plaster has a ton of dust. It makes a huge mess, such a big mess that the, the person who did our work said, you've got to get out of the house. And so we got out of the house for the day. He took the thing down and put all the stuff in the dumpster. He began to um, take, the, take, the, old, take the, the studs from the old wall out, made this massive mess, and then made more of a mess when he put um, some drywall up and then had to sand it all down, which made for more dust. And it got everywhere. I mean, all over our furniture, all over. Uh, and we had plastic over everything. It still got, everything got dusty. Bookshelves, furniture, everything. Because there was a disorganization that had to happen. And then the reorganization happened. They had to put this new strip of wood in there. They had to put this, uh, they called it a header. I didn't know what that was, but a header is what keeps your house from falling down. We had to put one of those in. It's still wide open, but maybe the first two feet, there's a header. And um, that's the organization that had to happen. And maybe that's what you're in the middle of in your life. Not maybe, you are in the middle of that if you're a Christian. The disorganization has happened. There's dust everywhere. Your house is a mess. It's not the way it's supposed to be. And that's where we live our lives. That's the process we're in. We're ripped. What happened is God is ripping things out of our lives. You're forever under renovation. See, when we become Christians, it happens instantaneously, and it's a complete work. But then sanctification is a slow work that is never completed in this life. And so one of these areas that's, being, that's under construction is how the resurrection touches your language, your use of words. And so with this new identity comes a whole new way of using words. And that's what we see. We see these four couplets in our text. The first one is in verse 25. You see it? False words versus true words. Verse 25. That's the first one. If, you want, if you're a points kind of person, if you're a note-taking kind of person... Uh, this is the first point. False words versus true words. Then verses 26 and 27, you see righteous anger versus unrighteous anger. Then in verse 28, you see stealing versus working hard. If you're wondering, what does that have to do with speech? I'll tell you in a minute. Um, then verse 29, you see that you have corrupting speech versus edifying speech. So each of these couplets, you have a prohibition, don't do this, and then a command, do this. You also have a motivation. This is what's glorious about Christianity is because it gives you a motivation. It begins to tap into this is who you are. Here's why you should obey this. So let's look at each of these together. Verse 25, false words versus true words. We'll read the verse. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. See, the foundation of being truthful is that God has been truthful with you. Thus, we're to be truthful with one another. And remember, this, this letter, Ephesians, is written to a church in Ephesus. It's a little six-chapter book, uh, but it was really just a long letter. And it's written to people who are saying that they're Christians. It's not, this isn't written for the newspaper. It's not written for the general public. It's written to Christians. So what's the truth about Christians? Not just those in Ephesus, but for us today and for all time. The truth is, is that we are both sinner and saint. We're 100% sinner and 100% saint. You don't get converted and you're like 
uh, a Christian and 99% a sinner, and then or you're 1% a saint and 99% a sinner, and that, that, that's just switching over time. That's not how it works. You're 100% a sinner when you become a Christian. Before you're a Christian, you become a Christian, and then you become 100% a saint. You're like, well, how does that work? Well, you're still capable of doing all the things you could before, but now you've tapped into this new power. You're a saint. And so for us to be truthful with one another in community, just like those in Ephesus, we have to keep these two things in sync. And if we don't, when they're out of sync, we cease to see the truth. So let me give you for instance. For instance, if we see ourselves or others as only saint or more saint than sinner, what we will do is we're going to overlook sin. We're going to forfeit opportunities for repentance, for growth, and most importantly, for grace. So just this week, I was with someone uh, who found out that their loved one's an alcoholic. And this person's really wrestling with whether to confront them or not. And they said, really through tears, they said, this is going to be really hard for me. And I was like, yeah, that's tough stuff right there. And as we began to keep talking, it became really obvious for this person to go on in relationship with their loved one who's an alcoholic and not say anything would be to live in falsehood. It'd be denying the person's substance abuse and just kind of sweeping everything under the rug. Everything's okay. And some of us, we're always afraid of confrontation because we're afraid that's going to mean the loss of friendship. And it is true that confronting someone with the truth can mean the loss of friendship. But if the person we're confronting is a Christian, telling them the truth might just be the means God uses to bring them to repentance. No one, even Christians, or maybe even especially Christians, aren't perfect. And we need to be told the truth because that's what gospel communities do. So you see what happens. If you just see someone, if you just want to live like and see someone as just a saint, the truth really doesn't have much place in their life. But if you just want to see someone or yourself as just a sinner, then you're going to overlook the reality of grace. You're going to become terribly judgmental. You're going to refuse to extend forgiveness. Sometimes in a tight-knit community, you're you become very aware of someone else's shortcomings. This is so true in marriage. Uh, it's true in families. And it could be very true in a church like ours that's not really big. You begin to see the worst things about one another very quickly. It's just hard to hide. But when you're in these close relationships with each other, in your family or in this church or maybe even in your neighborhood, you're also hurt by these people. Not only do you see their sins, you're hurt by their sins because they're such close proximity. And when this happens, when you've been hurt, it's really hard to believe that they're just as much a saint as they are a sinner. But the truth is, these people who have hurt you are just as, just as much saved by grace as you are. So do you see what happens? Do you see if you begin to live in falsehood and you're not living in the truth... You begin to skew things. It begins to fracture the community. It's, there's a threat to the unity of the body when we're not living in the truth that we are saints and sinners. And that's exactly why Paul puts the motivation he does. Do you see the motivation in verse 25? See the four? For we are members of one another. We tell the truth. Because when we tell the truth, the result is not a fractured community. It's not a loss of friendship. 
just because someone has their feelings hurt. Because that's not what unifies us. What unifies us is not a lack of sin. What unifies us is not a lack of hurt feelings. What unifies us is the grace of the gospel. Lots of questions in play here, right? Let me just ask a few that have been haunting me this week. Um, why am I so unwilling to see sin and speak truth to a fellow believer? Could I possibly be desiring their acceptance of, of me over their growth and grace? Why do I take my feelings of hurt so seriously that I cannot extend forgiveness to the one who's hurt me? Why do I think that Christ can forgive me of my sin, but I can't believe that he can forgive them of theirs? Here's the kicker that's got me. Um, when I exaggerate, when I use hyperbole, am I really being truthful? Are words like never and always really truthful? See, this is truth and falsehood. Don't you need some resurrection of words? I do. But then verses 26 and 27, they move on to another section, another way in which we use words in an unhealthy way. You see righteous anger and unrighteous anger. And you see where it says that? It says verse 26, 27. Be angry. Be angry. That's the, that, that's the prohibition. Be angry. You're thinking, oh, the Christians can't be angry. Oh, yeah, God's angry. But then it says, and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down in your anger and give no opportunity for the devil. So, you can see why sin can be righteous, or, or sin. Anger can be righteous. It can be healthy. But you see, as soon as, it's almost like, be angry, and he couldn't talk about it much longer before he had to, to turn the corner and say, and do not sin. Because there's this subtle temptation to regard our anger as righteous and others' anger as unrighteous. See, righteous anger, it's about seeing sin for what it really is and calling for it to be put to death. While unhealthy, unrighteous anger is tied to our injured pride, to our spirit of revenge, and it's tied to malice. So how can you tell the difference between righteous and unrighteous anger? Well, look at what it says right after this is, do not let the sun go down your anger. See, anger is like produce. It goes from good to bad really fast. When it broods, your anger broods, when it festers for any length of time, you can be sure that you have moved from righteous to unrighteous anger. So in order for you and I to prevent our anger from degenerating into sin, we've got to put a strict time limit on it. Maybe the time limit is don't let the sun go down in your anger, but maybe not. Maybe if you stayed up real late with someone as you're working out an issue, uh, you, you're going to become uh, so exhausted that you're not going to get a good outcome. But sometimes, and most all the time, we can't go from A to Z in one conversation. We need to keep pushing. We need to get to Z eventually. But if we stall out somewhere between A and Z, we're going to get unrighteously angry. What's this look like? I remember uh, in college, um, uh, I lived with three other guys. 
uh, one of them's in the room. And, um, and this, was, this was almost the 90s. And um, these, these guys were far from random. They were my very best friends. Uh, we were all in each other's weddings. We're still very close today. And uh, one of those guys, we'll call him Dennis. Uh, Dennis uh, made all the dishes, seemed like it anyways. I mean, he just ate and ate and ate and ate and ate. And he never washed any of them. Uh, you ever had that roommate? Uh, are you that roommate? Maybe. Um, and me and one of my other friends, one of my other roommates, we'll call him Sean, uh, we went to Knoxville for the day. And the whole way to Knoxville and the whole way home from Lexington, we complained about Dennis. And when we moved out, we were so thrilled to move out from Dennis, even though he was one of our best friends, because we couldn't talk to him about his dishes. We let our anger fester. But maybe for you, your anger is in your marriage. Maybe it's, easy, it's really easy to get angry in your marriage because there's so many opportunities to get angry. You're sharing time, money, relationships. You're even sharing your body with one another. So unhealthy anger usually comes out in this form of rage or outburst. It's unplanned. Unhealthy anger usually, um, unhe or healthy anger goes to a spouse and questions their own anger instead of validating it and says, hey, I may not be seeing things right here because my emotions are very loud in my own head. I might have crossed the line into unhealthy anger. So I'm going to ask you something in the form of a question instead of making an accusation. That's what healthy anger does. Then you have parenting. If you have children, you know that there's no other relationship that anger comes out like it does in parenting. Because in parenting, you're tasked with this job of disciplining your children. I mean, after all, we don't want our kids to grow up to be inmates, right? So we attempt to discipline. And as we do, we get angry. So it's almost, it's almost always appropriate in a relationship with your children to ask your kids to forgive you for being angry as you discipline. So the motivation for dealing with your anger is clear. Do you see it? What's the motivation? In verse 27, it says, not giving the devil a foothold. Now, people who remain angry, people who hold grudges, people who are slow to forgive, people who are touchy, talking to me, have given the devil a foothold. When you give the devil a foothold, you're giving him a significant influence in your life. It's scary. It's motivation for dealing with your anger in healthy ways. Words. They're a booger. Then you get to stealing. I know verse 28 is talking about uh, physical things, material things. Don't no longer steal, but rather labor, doing honest work with your hands. I know my sermon is about words, and this is about hands. But if you zoom out a touch in the scriptures, you see that stealing and giving have everything to do with words. Think about the ninth commandment. Thou shalt not give false witness. The ninth commandment, out of ten. Thou shalt not give false witness. It, it does mean in the court of law, but it means in everyday speech as well. Because giving false witness is about stealing someone's reputation. Why do we do that? Why do we give false witness? Why do we steal from somebody else's reputation? So we can add to our own. That's why we gossip. That's why we slander. We might say, oh, I'm just telling the truth. I'm just telling you so that you can pray for them. 
But what we're really doing is we're stealing someone's reputation in order to add to our own. Words. They're a booger. Verses 29 and 30. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. So Paul's staying after. I, I really wish that he would have stopped there in verse 20. I feel like, man, I could have handled those first three. When you go to the fourth, I just, I just, my knees buckled. That was all I could handle. I'm on the floor with this fourth couplet. He just keeps his foot on the gas. And this word for corrupting, it could be translated decaying. It's used elsewhere in the New Testament to talk about diseased trees and diseased fruit. And so you can have diseased speech. And you see those kind of words in verses 30, that list in 31. You see it, wrathful, anger, clamor, slander, and malice. That's what diseased speech looks like. They're destructive words. They're words that tear down within the community. Then there's this alternative to these words. You see the alternative? Verse 29. But it's only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion that may give grace to those who hear. There's no middle ground here. Either we're using words that are corrupting in nature, they're diseased in nature, or they're words that give the grace of Jesus Christ to people. And you see the motivation. The motivation is don't grieve the Holy Spirit. I think, gosh, that's kind of random. I mean, of all places, you don't grieve the Holy Spirit. I mean, you'd think that'd be some great big public kind of sin that would grieve the Holy Spirit. Nope. What grieves the Holy Spirit is probably the sin that's most invasive in our life, that of our tongue. Why is it grieving? Well, I, I, I begin to think, we're going on vacation here fairly soon, and we're going to be at the beach. Got me thinking about sandcastles. I like a good sandcastle. Um, and think about if you've been building a sandcastle all day long, and someone, probably someone close to you, a dear friend, a family member, they've been watching you work tirelessly at this sandcastle, building this masterpiece. And then the person who's been watching you decides to be a big fat jerk and take a cannonball on top of your sandcastle. It's your masterpiece. Of course you would be grieved. And that's what we do with our words because we are the masterpiece of the Holy Spirit. We are the raw material that He's working with. I, I, it's a hard job to call us, to sanctify us. We're just a big group of knuckleheads. It's called the church. And He's at work doing something in us. And then someone from within the masterpiece comes in and throws a bunch of black paint on it. That's why it grieves the Holy Spirit. Because our words tear down the thing that the Holy Spirit is at work in. And it grieves the very person of the Holy Spirit. So here's an overview of what we've just seen. The Ephesians, the people in the church. <laughs> Again, this is not the newspaper. This letter is to be read to a group of people just like you and just like me. And Paul's saying, I know, y'all, bunch of thieves, bunch of liars, using a bunch of diseased speech, you're a bunch of people who need to enter anger management, you're like cannibals who are just hurting each other so you can feed your own egos, and you're doing all this with words. And so he's going to try to tell us, how are you going to put this right? Well, look, at, look at the beginning of verse 32. 
Beginning of verse 32 says, Be kind, tender-hearted, and forgiving. You see that? These are all attitudes. Very different from those four couplets. I mean, those four couplets are all about action. Now we're getting into attitudes. It's almost like these actions. Those four couplets are all about the iceberg. You know, 10% of the, you've heard the, the old adage that 10% of the iceberg is above, is above the waterline. That's what you can see. But the bulk of the iceberg is underneath, things you can't see. And that's who we are as people. We've got all this, this, cor- this corrupting talk, this lying, this anger, uh, the, 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 um, this, uh, this stealing. It's all what we can see. But what's underneath are these attitudes. And he begins to say, if you want your speech to change on the top, you've got to embrace these attitudes here on the bottom, being kind, tenderhearted, and forgiving. That's the only thing that's going to change. But doesn't that sound just as burdensome? I mean, changing your behavior is one thing, but changing the motivational structures of our inner being is impossible. But maybe it doesn't sound burdensome to you. Maybe you hear, all right, I'm ready. I can, I'll take this up. Kind, forgiving, tenderhearted. I, I, I got that. That's it, achievable. A little intentionality, a little accountability, a little resolution. I think I can pull this off. I need to burst your bubble. You just aren't that powerful. And I'm not either. But the resurrection power of Jesus Christ does come in and says, you can't do this by working harder. The resurrection power of Jesus comes to us and says, if we're willing to look away from ourselves as a solution, we will see Jesus as a solution to our attitudes to what's underneath the surface. Because look at the end of verse 32. End of verse 32 says, um, be kind of one another, uh, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God and Christ forgave you. So how are you going to have the power to confront someone without being afraid they're going to reject you forever? How are you going to be able to extend forgiveness to someone who's hurt you badly? How are you going to be able to be so secure in who you are in Christ that you're not going to need to steal someone's reputation in order to decorate your own? How are you going to be able to be properly angry? How are you going to be able to give the grace of Jesus with your words when you've been displaying a consistent pattern of using your words to tear others down? You're going to have to experience the compassion of Jesus. You're going to have to experience the forgiveness of Jesus. I looked up this word compassion. And man, it's all over the Gospels. It's all over. Matthew and Luke use this word compassion in Jesus' ministry all over the place. One of the times that, uh, that, that Matthew uses is in chapter 14. Chapter 14, what happens in the first half of the chapter is that Jesus gets word that his cousin, probably one of the, his favorite people in the whole world, John the Baptist, he finds out that John the Baptist has been beheaded. He's sad. And he's trying to get away from the crowds to go be by himself. But as he's getting away from the crowds to be by himself, he's found by another crowd. <laughs> and if I were Jesus in that moment, I'd be like, listen, I got to have my alone time. Just got some bad news. Need to grieve. Leave me alone. But it says that Jesus felt compassion for them. A bunch of needy people, when he's exhausted, and he extends compassion to them. Another place is uh, Luke chapter 10. You've got the Good Samaritan. The Good Samaritan, uh, really, you should be seeing Jesus as a Samaritan if you know the story. And in verse 33, it says the Good Samaritan uh, looks at the man who's been beaten and has compassion on him. 
He's in a helpless estate and has compassion on him. He saw the crowds, they're needy, shows them compassion. He sees the helpless state of the, of, of, uh, the beaten man and shows compassion. And then probably most scandalously, Luke chapter 15, verse 20, we're in the middle of the prodigal son. You know the story. The son goes away, uh, asks for his inheritance, goes and spends all of his inheritance, ends up in such a low place that he's eating pig's food. And while he's eating pig's food, he remembers, oh, I have a father who loves me. I'm going to go home and see if he welcomes me back. And you know the story. That when he was still a, far, a long ways off, it's almost like the father sitting on the front porch. The father sees his son coming over the hill and he bolts off the front porch, meets him in the driveway, all because he had, you know what he had for him? Compassion. Jesus has compassion on rebels. Jesus has compassion on needy people. Jesus has compassion on people who are helpless. And when you see yourself as the one who needs compassion, it begins to change everything, even the way you use your words. Jesus extends that compassion to us when he died for us. And now, because of the resurrection, we extend that same compassion to needy, helpless, rebellious people. And we do so through our words. Because if Jesus can extend that compassion to you, he can extend that passion to others through you. Let's pray. Father, thank you that uh, you forgive us, <laughs> that um, you just didn't give these commands and leave us all to ourselves, but you gave us uh, the one who provides the power for our obedience, the Holy Spirit. And so Lord, we throw ourselves at you and ask for your help as we want to experience resurrection at work in our lives. We pray this in your name. Amen.